Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard.com Pop Shop Podcast. My name is Keith Caulfield, and I am the co-director of Charts at Billboard. The Billboard Pop Shop Podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Today on the show, we've got Coming Around Again with Billboard.com Senior Associate Editor Andrew Unterberger. Andrew will be speaking with Billboard contributor Eric Spitznagel about one of my favorite albums, In Excess's Kick. The album is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year, and Andrew and Eric talk about the piece Eric wrote for Billboard about the album and its fascinating and contentious backstory in which the band's manager claims they were offered a million dollars by their disgruntled label to delete the album and start over. Of course, the album that they didn't delete went on to be a career-defining release for the act, sell millions and millions of copies around the world, and it still sounds modern and fresh today. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on iTunes so you won't miss an episode, and give us a rating or a review while you're at it. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit iTunes.com slash Billboard Podcasts. So Kick is truly one of my favorite albums ever and simply one of the best albums of the 1980s. It is such a great album and full of familiar hits that you probably know. The album reached number three on the Billboard 200 chart and is the band's highest charting effort. And it launched four top 10 singles on the Billboard Hot 100, Devil Inside, New Sensation, Never Tear Us Apart, and their only number one hit, Need You Tonight. The Grammy Award-nominated album would eventually be certified six times platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America, and as noted earlier, it still sounds fresh and cool today, 30 years later. So, let's go back to 1987 with In Excess's Kick on Coming Around Again. Hello, and welcome to Coming Around Again, Billboard's anniversary-themed podcast dealing with anniversaries in the music world. Uh, today we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of In Excess's Kick album, which came out October 19th, 1987. Uh, really came to define the band's career, made them superstars. Uh, never quite lived up to it afterwards, but uh, here to talk about the album with us is a guy who did a really interesting story that's going to be appearing in, in Billboard magazine this week, and that's Eric Spitznagel. What's up, Eric? Not too much, Andrew. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Uh, so why don't we kind of start with uh, talking about your own experiences with NXS? I mean, uh, were you a fan of theirs yeah. growing up? Uh, what, what, do you, what do you remember about uh, NXS in the late 80s and when, when this album came out? I was uh, I was in my mid to late teens, like 16 or 17 when Kick came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember being transfixed by it. I mean, it was really, it was it, it was not necessarily the type of music I was listening to, but most of what was on the radio was like Michael Jackson and Debbie Gibson and Rick Astley and Tiffany and the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. And I remember it, it came on MTV and I was just, me and some of my, my friends were just like looking at Michael Hutchins. It's like, are, are we doubting our sexuality right now? <laughs> something weird is going on. on I'm sure you were not alone that in is, that. Exactly. So it was, it, I mean, it seemed so 
not even uh, uh, such a different type of type of sound than what we are used to hearing on the radio and on MTV, but we couldn't really even wrap our heads around like, is this is this dance music? Is this rock music? I mean, is it some kind of hybrid of all of that? It seemed very confusing. I remember that. Yeah, I mean, your your article raises a number of really interesting points about NXS and kind of their their place in music at this time, but. I think one of the ones that I never really considered is just sort of how, how, as you kind of mentioned, is how out of step it was with what was going on in rock at the time. You know, this was the era of, I, you know, uh, either like like big anthemic alternative rock like, uh, you know, U2 or Simple Minds. Uh, but uh, on the other side, there was, you know, there was hair metal uh, and In Excess doesn't really fit into any of this. It's, it's not a, not really like a, yeah. a chess beating band. And, and this this album has that kind of hybrid sound. It's sort of part pop, part funk, part rock, part soul, that, that yeah, it, it was very out of step with what was going on at the time. Uh, so, yeah, so, yeah you, you ended up writing about it for us for its 30th anniversary. Uh, how, how did this article kind of come about? It was, was it something, it was a story that you had interest in pursuing? Because you come across some well, interesting revelations. About my my editor had mentioned it to me, and, and it, 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 at first we were kind of approaching it as, you know, this band used to be the biggest thing in the universe. Sure. When, the, when this record came out, it was huge. And and to kind of go back and look at it again and look at that time and what was so remarkable about it, does it hold up? What went into making this surprise hit that it was going you know so far in the other direction of uh, what was happening musically at the time? And certainly never anticipating it becoming you know such a such an involved story. We thought it was just going to be like let's take another listen. This is a classic <laughs> album, and, and and it's still a classic album if you listen to it today. This is still. Uh, hold up, and that's what it started up being. And then, you know, I start talking to people, and and the plot thickens, as they say. Yeah, and you know, you so you, you talk to uh, the band's manager, I guess, uh, Chris Murphy. You talk to Andrew Ferris, who was a you know, guitarist for the band, and and some interesting people from right. from the label of that time. And I guess the, the kind of the, the central revelation of your piece is that. Uh, at least according to some, that uh, Atlantic Records kind of wanted to kill this album when they first heard it, and, and that uh, you know yeah. they, they played yeah. that the band played "Need You Tonight" for the label, which was obviously you know, the first single, and it went out to be a huge hit, and, and they were horrified by it, right. or at the very least, they didn't get what they were going for. That, that was the story. I mean, at, at least according, I mean, the, the, this mythology really comes from Chris Murphy, who mm-hmm. was the the longtime manager for for In Excess up until I believe the mid '90s, and he he released. Uh, uh, his, his autobiography or memoir not long ago uh, that kind of looked at his quote unquote remarkable career <laughs> and he talked about <laughs> he talked about Kick and, and his his uh, one of his uh, big stories is that when the album was done he brought it in to uh, Doug Morris who is uh, then the president of Atlantic and played him the entire record they just sat in his record uh, they sat, sat in his office the two of them and listened to it from beginning to end and according to, to Murphy, after it was done, uh, Doug said, Doug Morris said, I'll give you a million dollars to erase the trade dates and just start from scratch. Which, you know, for, for Chris, for the whole band, was devastating news. And, I mean, remarkable news, if you think about it. it, it he's not even just saying this hit-making band, because they had, this was not like a, a band that had come out of nowhere. They had sure. just released uh, Listen, Listen Like Thieves, which had, you know, what you need, which is the band's first top ten in the U.S., so there was reason to believe that they had a sound that would sell, but that that the president of Atlantic would say, "I will give you a million dollars just to <laughs> pretend this didn't exist." I mean, that's crazy. So yeah. that's Chris's story, and then uh, you know, according to to him, what happened next is he left the office and said, 
you know what? I'm gonna we're gonna do this anyway. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to force Atlantic to put it out. I have to sh- prove to them that this is an album full of hits. So uh, we're gonna approach college radio. We're going to approach. Uh, we're gonna just have the band tour and kind of get a grassroots thing going, and and you know talk to MTV and figure out ways to make this record seem you know impossible for Atlantic to turn down. Uh, so that's that's Chris Murphy's story. Then I call uh, Doug Morris and ask him about this, and he has no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> he uh, his his reaction was like, "I love the album." There was what was what, what is what is Chris talking about? No, I knew it was fantastic that uh, uh, that that Michael Hutchins guy who was who was born to be a star completely disagreed with everything uh, Chris Murphy said. So then, you, I mean, you know, as a journalist, you have a tricky situation. You have a he said, he said, uh, in which nobody else was in the room, and uh, one person saying, no, that's BS, and and the other saying, oh, that absolutely happened, and uh, if In Excess uh, didn't have me on their side, you there never would have been a kick. So, so, does, so one of, does one of those arguments scan as more credible to you than the other one? Um. When you, when you start, I mean, I, I talked to a lot of people uh, at Atlantic who had been there, who are still there working in promotions and, and, and working in sales and, and working in every aspect of the company. Uh, and they all say we can't say for certain what happened because we weren't in that office. It would be mm-hmm. speculation at best. But none of them heard a peep about this. And it, it seems curious to me that that the president of Atlantic would make this offer and have these strong feelings about a record and yet nobody else would hear a word about this nobody in and in, in, in any level of the company heard that there might be delaying or or canceling the release of the album so that seems to make Doug Morris his side of the story seem a little bit more plausible uh, also, Chris Murphy. The one thing everyone will tell you about him is he he does like his own mythology. <laughs> he is he is he, not only his own mythology, but the the band sure. mythology. I, sure. I think in in his head, he thinks it's a better story if we were completely denied and we had to fight for this music to be heard. I mean, it's possible. It's entirely possible that that Doug Morris, as brilliant as he is, didn't entirely get it. Maybe because it's so different, as we as, as we discussed with you know everything else on the radio. Maybe he was hoping for something that was more clearly uh, uh, had a clear genre to it that was easy to pigeonhole and sell. So it's possible that he just showed a little bit of uncertainty and, and then somehow in, in Chris's head, he's like, he offered me a million dollars. Yeah, I mean, I mean cool. the million dollars part is, is really like, I, I remember when we were discussing this this article in the <laughs> office, I heard that amount and I, you know, my, my jaw dropped. It seems so improbable. Uh, and I, I have to say that, like, it doesn't sound particularly plausible to me i mean as far as kick you know not sounding like uh like rock radio in 1987 that's fair enough but it does still sound like in excess you know i mean obviously listen like these was like a was a slightly more traditionally rock album but the line between what you yeah the line between what you need which was was obviously as we said it was a very big hit on its own right as as the the big single off listen like thieves the line between that and new sensation which is one of the big hits off this record is pretty small there's not a lot of distance traveled there uh, so to, to hear sure, this album sure. and be so shocked by it and so taken aback by it not being what you wanted in excess to produce that you're willing to offer them seven digits to, to erase it 
maybe stretches credibility a little bit. Now, what you do have on your side, or at least rather on, on Chris Murphy's side, is Andrew Ferris, the guitarist, who says that, he, and by his memory, the response to the album was, you can't put out this record, it doesn't sound like the hair band's wearing spandex. So he, he definitely remembers there being some sort of friction there, and then and some, some sort of pushback from Atlantic on it. Exactly. And whether he was getting that directly from the label, or if he was getting that from Chris Murphy, who's kind of trying to rally the troops and let them know that we're going to do this. I mean, it, it's hard to say, but it does seem like there was a sense in the band that, that, that the label wasn't 100% behind them and they would have to prove that this record could do something. Sure. And, and the, the other part that, that you kind of touched on already but I found particularly interesting is when you talk about, and, and numerous people confirm this in the story, although they, they have some differing opinions as to whose idea it was and who actually executed it, but the idea of marketing the album to college radio specifically first. Uh, now, yes. yeah. certainly by the time of Kick, uh, this band had kind of outgrown college radio, at least as like a primary mode of promotion. And you would say that you know a lot of the songs of this album they sound almost too big for college radio. They, you know, they don't they don't fit in with kind of like the the REM and 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 their followers. That that was probably the bedrock for a lot of alternative college radio stations at the time. But I, I'm curious, right. as someone who was kind of around at the time, although I guess you were a little young to know it, uh, you know how it really fit into the college radio scene. Like, was NXS cool in 1987? Was this like a, a band that people <laughs> like that cool that's people a, listened that's to? That's a really good question. I don't, I don't remember. I mean, I, I, I was in college at like 88, 89, which was a little up to the time, but I don't recall them being cool. I remember as a teenager that the girls were in love with it and it was sure. very danceable, and yet it seemed rock and roll. But I don't, that's a fascinating question. Like, were they ever cool? Where was it, was it to, to say in excess, you know, I listen to Kick. Whoa, dude, you must have gotten that from a college radio station. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't quite weird. fit. Yeah, and, and the band themselves, yeah. I mean, the, and especially Michael Hutchins, the lead singer, uh, obviously very much in the kind of the rock god mold of a, of a Jim Morrison or a Mick Jagger. Uh, you can't really picture yeah. them, you know, touring college campuses, playing, you know, a thousand seat venues, that sort of thing. Like, it, it seems like this was a band that was meant to be, if not the biggest band in the world, and certainly in the discussion, which which they became shortly after Kick. Uh, so, I mean, right. yeah. what, what what was it about about this album specifically that you think kind of made the difference? That that kind of you know. Listen, like Thieves obviously made them you know, part of the discussion, but it, it wasn't really like a world conqueror the way that Kick was. What, what was it about Kick specifically that you think put them on that level of a U2 or a Guns N' Roses or really like the big boys of rock radio was, at the time? I think it was, it, was, it was so damn catchy. I mean, and that was kind of the point that I, I guess right after Listen Like Thieves, uh, uh, Andrew uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and Michael decided, okay, we're going to do this completely different. There was something about Andrew talked a lot about this. There was something in the song "What You Need" mm-hmm. that he didn't feel like that was just a, a, a hit. Like there's a formula there, and we got to figure out what we are hitting at with that formula. So they, a- Andrew and Michael, talked to the rest of the band and said, "Let's do this record differently. Differently, uh, we're going to go away, just the two of us, and and we're going to write a collection of songs. We're going to go hide out in Hong Kong." And finish and finish all these songs, and then bring them back to the band, which is different than how they had worked up to that point. Usually, everyone was contributing, and they would kind of create songs organically together. But Andrew was really thinking about like the formula of of, of, of how to get something that he kept saying that sounds like the future, that sounds like something like mm-hmm. did I just take a time machine into the you know ten years. From now that didn't that felt like it didn't belong in the time. Right, the twenty first uh, century is so, yesterday, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's that's what they were aiming for, and there are, I mean, listening to the album 
a lot recently, it doesn't sound dated. It doesn't sound like a lot of the the big big hits of the eighties. I mean, it mm-hmm. does sound weirdly contemporary. So, and there's something in those those guitar lines that you know, maybe it's just because I listen to it too much. But then 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 then. I mean, it's so <laughs> it, it could be math. It's yeah. a math equation, how catchy that is. No, and, and that was really the thing that struck me kind of revisiting this album the last week or two is just the economy of the riffs. Like, the Need You Tonight riff, yeah. uh, that's, that might even be one of the more complex guitar riffs on this album, and it's still just, you know, three <laughs> chords, kind of played very staccato, very very simply. And, like, like New Sensation, yeah. uh, which is, you know, follows most closely in the What You Need model, that's just two chords over and over again. It's almost like a Velvet Underground song, the way it's structured. <laughs> Uh, but the, yes, they're so catchy. Yeah. You, you hear them once and you remember them forever. Uh, I, I don't think Andrew Ferris gets necessarily a lot of credit for this band's success. I think when you talk about NXS, you usually talk about Michael Hutchins. But I, I think that right. you know, he, as kind of the, the primary uh, sonic composer of this album, he had a, a ton to do with it, with the band's success and just creating these kind of you know very compact riffs that are that are easily accessible and, and, and not really overloaded with heroics or e- even the kind of you know. Uh, I don't know the chest puffing of, of the hair metal scene at the time, but it, it just kind of spoke to everybody. It seems like, and, and a lot of the songs are kind of yeah. built around that. He's, he's, he was very much an architect, and, mm-hmm. and he describes himself that way too. And, and I mean, he's almost the opposite of a Keith Richards, who was everything was just coming out of his gut. It, it seems like with Andrew, everything was coming out of his brain, and what's gonna what's going to affect people in a certain way. I mean, it's it's fascinating the way he approached it. That it that it wasn't about like getting together a bunch of guys with instruments and jamming. It was it was thinking about the way notes uh, work together and what kind of effect they have on our emotions and our, our brains and what makes us want to get up. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's it, it's remarkable the way the way he did it, and and it certainly shows in the outcome how huge. I mean, how many they had like four four hits, and if you play the record. It almost seems like is this the greatest hits package? It's just memorable ditty after memorable ditty. Yeah, and I think that it, that almost kind of hurts Inexcess's uh, like like uh, their their notoriety in retrospect. In that like so much of, of what people yeah. remember about them is contained to this one album. Uh, but yeah, the, <laughs> as you as you mentioned, like it's uh, the, the approach that Andrew Ferris took to this album. It's 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 a very pop sort of approach. And the fact that you kind of combined yeah. that kind of pop craftsmanship with Michael Hutchins's, you know, undeniable animalistic rock star charisma—that's that, a pretty potent package. Yeah. It's not really surprising that uh, that it ended up taking over the world. But yeah, I mean, and and, and you know, talking about this album is sort of sounding like a greatest hit set. It, it's it's almost unfair the way it's structured because it's it's like the Joshua Tree, and it's like so many other albums of the late '80s. Def Leppard's Hysteria is like this too. Where like yeah, the first four or five songs are the first four or five songs you know on the album. Basically, I mean, they, they, they have the discipline to save, never tear us apart for the second half. But aside from that, it's it's basically just hit after hit after hit. Now, right. digging a little deeper, are, are there any songs in this album that that kind of stand out to you as either like a lost classic or a buried gem of some sort, like a song that you might not know just from kind of living in the world in the late eighties? That's interesting because I'm so I listen to it today like I listened to it back then. Like it starts out strong. You got that first album, uh, I mean that first side that's just unbelievable. And then I always find myself distracted and going someplace else. <laughs> or like I don't know if I've ever heard. Like I'm looking at the track listing right now. Like calling all nations, tiny daggers. Yeah, I feel like I knew those songs. But I don't. <laughs> 
they're like I couldn't hum them to you right now. And it's interesting too because at the time before you know now we look at it and like what's well, clearly it's it's top heavy uh, that the first side is full of hits. But but at the time, I mean, hearing from from uh, Murphy and from Andrew about this, that there was a lot of uh, uh, nervousness about what to what to lead with. That uh, that the band and and the, and the label was very very uh, determined that uh, it's got to be Devil Inside. Devil Inside is the hit. You gotta mm. that's gonna be the first single. And Murphy pushed really hard for Needy Tonight, and and he really thought, no, that's gonna be the first one out and it got so nerve wracking for them. And apparently, you know, band members would be calling Murphy in the middle of the night and going like, I'm really freaking out about this. We're putting out the wrong single. It's gotta be devil inside. What do you, that's our hit. So even, even they were thinking about like, well, we're going to have one strong single from this and hopefully that supports the, the, the record. That'll be like, what, what's our, what you need on this record. That's going to, that's going to carry it. I mean, I can't even fathom that, like, oh, don't worry, the whole first side is complete hit. <laughs> Yeah, and that is interesting because I do think Devil Inside probably would have been the safer choice because it does have a very kind of muscular rock feel to it. It's almost like a like a like a one one upping of a Billy Idol song, sort of. It's 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 got that yeah. kind of leather jacket sound to it. You can picture like the video, you know, people riding on motorcycles through it, and like it, it, you, you could sort of see where that fits in on 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 radio in 1987. Whereas whereas Need You Tonight is it's a very it's a very sparse record. It's a very kind of almost yeah. minimalistic. So, I mean, I can count like three or four different times in that song where you can just hear Michael Hutchins breathing. And that's a pretty rare <laughs> thing for, for a pop lead single. But yeah. Need You Tonight, that's the, that's the indelible song off this album. That's the song that, you know, 30 years later, I, I think, you know, maybe people don't know the name In Excess, but they, they know Need You Tonight. And they'll, they'll hear that riff and they'll instantly, you know, snap to recognition from it. Uh Right and 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 yeah, like like you say, uh, you know, I I do think there are some there's there's some good songs in the second half of this album. I think you know, Tiny Daggers maybe could have been a single. I I, I think that uh, yeah, uh, you know, Wild Life is fine, but you know, I, I owned this album on cassette when I was growing up, and I don't know how many times I even made it to the second side. It's it's pretty it's pretty <laughs> overwhelming just how fantastic the first side of this album is. So it's it's not surprising yeah, yeah. that that the, the second half kind of pales in comparison. Uh, now, now we we, t- we talked a little bit about how you know th- this was the album for an excess, basically. You know, they, they they've had other hits before that, they've had other hits since it. But when you think of an excess, you think of this album. Uh, do you right. do you have any kind of theory as to why they never quite you know got to this level again? Was it just that music passed them by, or did they, did they kind of take too long of a break after Kick? What, what, what's your theory about that? That I mean, it could it could be everything from when you hit that peak. Do you ever, you know, recreate that energy again? Can you can you make? I mean, there's there's a lot of pressure when you have a have a record that's not this big, but like is is, is almost a greatest hits package. So I think it's it, it might be partly like all of a sudden. And I talked a little bit about this with Andrew. It was a little bit about overthinking at that point. Mm-hmm. You get caught up in your own celebrity at, at a certain extent, and also music was on the cusp of changing. I mean, it was. It was, uh, if not that same year, I think it was it was uh, uh, 1988 when Guns N' Roses were coming out, and which was you know ch- starting to change the music a little bit. Sure. So they 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 you know weren't going to be cast aside by by Nirvana and grunge and any, and everything else. But it they were very they, I, you hear their music and uh, they they were very caught up in the and uh, kind of the the. the I don't want to say the music of the '80s because it still works today, but 
uh, you you very much think of 1987, 1988 when you think of of NXS. So I, I I think it it might really just come down to you know you 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 made this gigantic success, and when you start thinking about making another gigantic success, you can get too caught up in your head, like being the architect that Andrew was. Uh, maybe you can't go back to that same drawing board again and, and, and get the perfect formula the second time around. Yeah, and, and I, I also wonder if, you know, the, the fact that they were such a, a pop-constructed band at this point, if that, you know, if that hurt them with kind of the, you know, Michael Hutchins otherwise, uh, he, he lives the rock mythology almost to a cliche. You know, he has the the supermodel, yeah. the supermodel yeah. wife and, and, and the, the incredible kind of history of sexual prowess and, and just, just glamour and drugs and you know, the, the, the entire story before you know, his untimely death in 1997, which, you know, depending on who you believe, was either uh, a suicide or you know, despondency over not getting to see his kid or, or just a, an autoerotic asphyxiation gone awry. Uh, he right. should be kind of that sort of Jim Morrison venerated figure. Uh, you know, you know, sixteen-year-old yeah. high school boys wanting to grow up to be him, but it it just doesn't quite work <laughs> out like that because they were generally a pop band, and his his lyrics don't require any kind of deeper reading. Uh, you know, that no one's going to confuse Michael Hutchins' lyrics for poetry, uh, but he, he so he he was kind of a, a pop star in a, in a rock star's body, if that makes sense. Does that does that does that sound right to you? Yeah. It, it it it's interesting because when you when, when anyone anyone I've talked to about about him like you know M- MTV VJs like Alan Hunter to you know the the Atlantic guys uh, uh, everyone the, the way they talk about him is they're like he was the next Mick Jagger mm-hmm. he was the Jim Morrison for this for that generation they use all these venerable fi- figures but you're right I mean today you you're never going to go to a college dorm room and see somebody you know with Michael's uh, shirtless poster <laughs> up on their wall. Probably but not. But Mick Jagger will be up there. I mean, mm-hmm. Jim Morrison continues to 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 be up here. And, and you know, uh, certainly the Doors had uh, uh, possibly listed and NXS did. So maybe it is that pop thing, as sexy as it was and as, as, uh, 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 and, and as unique as that, as that sound was at the time. It was just maybe a little too poppy for that for that legend to transcend into 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 something that was of, of a James Dean level. But yeah. he really that energy. You go watch those videos or live shows again. I mean, it it is. It's not you know an exaggeration to go. He had that Mick Jagger, sure. you know Jim Morrison, Elvis Presley energy and sexual bravado about him. Uh, but, but even if the band doesn't quite make it to the rock history books the way that, that maybe you would think they would or that they, sh- they arguably should have, uh, you could say that the fact yeah. that they were, they were a pop band makes them actually more relevant to 2017 than a lot of their, their rock peers at the time. I mean, you, you have a great line. I think yeah. it's, it's the kicker of your story where uh, Chris Murphy says that if Shawn Mendes had released Need Your Night today, that it would be a gigantic hit. And usually when people say yeah. things like that about, you know, you could release that song today and it'd still be a hit, it's like, well, oh, maybe, but probably not. I, I could hear it. Like I, I, I can, I could see it happening with someone like him or a Charlie Puth. Like there, there are songs on the radio now that you change kind of a couple of lyrics, a couple of things about the beat, and it sounds a lot like "Need You Tonight." Yeah. Uh, so, how do you see the band's you know contemporary relevance kind of sticking around in 2017? It it it, it does seem poised for a comeback. Mm-hmm. It, it it could you know get a renewed interest again. I don't know. They're they're re-releasing uh, or they're coming out with a reissue of the album again sure. with I, I don't know how many CDs. Uh, but with the with the uh, the, the documentary on Michael, Michael Hutchins coming out, there there could you know people have a, the public has a way of rediscovering 
some of these acts that uh, that they've they've abandoned. So it's it's possible. I mean, uh, who who the heck knows? Because I mean, what Murphy said about being able to re-record uh, this song, he's a hundred percent right. He he may be full of BS about everything else, <laughs> but that that is true. Yes. Like if if you couldn't re-record George Michael's, you know, I want your sex, and it'd be like that's contemporary. That sounds fresh to my ears. I mean, a lot of the big hits back then, uh, uh, they could not be re-recorded. But sure. uh, yeah, I I think a hundred percent. There's something to the music that uh, that stands the test of time. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, I I got I got an inkling in my in my gut that it could be we could we we he may still uh, uh, Michael may still get the the uh, the iconic status that he deserves. In excess may get uh, you know re-examined in a new light. All right, well, here's hope, and I'll, I'll certainly, you know, leave the charge on that one along with you and, and this this awesome piece that you wrote for us. Uh, if you haven't if you haven't read it yet, hopefully it's up by now. Go and check it out. Uh, Eric Spitznagel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on, Andrew. 